welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always want to extend a greeting to you guys, you guys, and of course the returning listeners keep us going. Please consider getting a subscription. You can become a subscriber. You'll have access to the brand new subscriber only section of the website. That means that you're going to have access to all of the articles that would have been in the print magazine previously, plus additional content, including podcasts and interviews and other things that will be in there as well. That's all coming in the very near future. So get on that subscription, keep Counterpunch going, keep our lights on and keep the content rolling. We have so much good content, so many good writers, including people like Lucy Schiller, who is with me today. Lucy is a New Mexico-based essayist. She is currently working on a book about the musician Arthur Russell. You can find her work at her website, Lucy-Schiller, that's S-C-H-I-L-L-E-R, dot work. Lucy Schiller, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. Thanks for coming on and for all the work you've been doing. You've been doing such excellent writing recently, including for Counterpunch, and we'll get to a recent Counterpunch piece of yours in a little while. But I wanted to speak with you today about this absolutely jaw-dropping piece that you had uh, a few days ago at the Baffler entitled Aging in Place on COVID-19 and the Lucrative World of Senior Living. So there's a lot in this article and we'll kind of unpack a bunch of it, I'm sure, but um, it centers around Louise. So Lucy, tell me about Louise. Yes. Okay. So I just want to preface this by saying I was... um, fairly new to the world of senior living. And as you said, um, it is an absolutely huge topic, so much to unpack and talk about. My entry point here was my grandmother, Louise. Um, Louise is actually not her real name. I felt like I needed to use a pseudonym in this article. I had no idea you know, how many people would see it. But one thing that I knew was that I didn't really want to get her in trouble or to foreclose upon her potential future as an elderly person who needs a lot of help physically. Um, You know, she's one of so many people and an increasing number of people who need help from places like um, Brookdale, which is the company that I focused on in this article. So she's 95, um, actually, sorry, whoops, she's 96. (laughs) I just forgot my own grandmother's age. She's about to be 97. She um, taught art for most of her life. Um, She was a really talented artist. She still is. Um, But she, like so many other elderly people and people who sometimes aren't even that old, um, really needs a lot of assistance just going about her day. Um, So she needs help with everything from making sure that she's taking the right medications um, in the right order, on the right days, in the right permutations, to, you know, um, being bathed, to, um, yeah, just having company around. And, um, you know, our society, we could talk more about this. It's a huge topic. um, And I think it's a really complicated one. It is, I think, increasingly difficult for families to care for their elderly members. Um, Maybe that's because people are working multiple jobs. Maybe that's because there isn't enough space. Maybe it's because their elderly family member has 
you know, um, Alzheimer's or a degenerative disease or simply a medical issue that um, is beyond the capability of the rest of the family to care for. Um, whatever it is, the senior living industry is absolutely huge So and caters to those types of needs. Um, so yeah, Louise, my grandmother, she has been in a senior living facility for some time now um, and yeah, has, has set down roots there, has developed a life, has a relationship in the facility, um, has many friends. And as we know now from just looking at the newspaper um, and seeing photographs, this is a really scary time to be in a senior living facility. Um, and in my article, um, and I'm happy to go further into this, I think a main question that I was interested in asking um, was why, besides the fact that these people are elderly and thus vulnerable to COVID-19, um, in a particular way, why besides that are all of these people suddenly dying in these for-profit senior living facilities? In Louise's case, thankfully she's fine. Um, we as a family, an extended family, were lucky um, and we were able to extract her from her particular facility um, fairly early on. But it was kind of at the beginning of the COVID crisis and we watched and listened and heard um, as her particular facility was kind of put on lockdown, as so many places now are. Um, the company, which I can talk more about, Brookdale, it's the largest senior living company in the United States. Um, and we didn't know that. I certainly didn't at the time. Um, and so what they did, uh, which is very much, I learned later, in line with their kind of larger strategy of consolidation, um, was they moved people from all over Denver, which is the area in which she was living, from all over their, their other facilities in Denver into her facility um, who were COVID positive. So and without telling any family members, without telling the residents from what I could tell, um, and certainly not the many of the staff as well who um, are kind of gig workers and working um, very diligently and very hard. Um, for a number of different uh, residents all across Denver. So when we heard that there were people moving into her facility from all across Denver who had tested positive for COVID and that the company had decided that this was the best strategy for some reason, um, we felt like we needed to get Louise out of there right away. So she's currently... Um, being cared for by my extended family. I was up there at the beginning um, helping to care for her. And it was kind of in those first few days that I started really becoming curious about, honestly, something I should have been curious about a long time ago, which is, um, you know, the company in charge of the quality of my grandmother's life and the quality of a lot of people's lives in a particularly scary moment so that was when the story kind of started for me, and I began digging into the um, financial filings with the Securities and Exchange Commission of Brookdale Senior Living, um, and kind of with the express intent of answering that question, you know, what have their financial strategies been over the past few years, and how has this potentially laid the groundwork for this crisis to be so bad in places like Louise's facility? 
obviously very critical questions, but um, before we can focus on Brookdale, can I just ask you to give us a little bit of a macro level view of the senior care industry? Because as you said, and I think it's true for certainly true for me and probably most of us who are who are listening to this, who are maybe not, you know, uh, elderly already, have no idea what this industry is. I mean, you know, you you see them everywhere. You see these facilities, but I mean, the idea that there are different products, different product lines catered to many different uh, uh, needs and segments and demographics and so forth. So, give us a little bit of a sense of, from a macro perspective about this industry. Yeah. So I think you're totally spot on, and it's such an interesting idea that. Um, just like Walmart in a way, which is actually a company that Brookdale was compared to, um, to me by someone who wanted to remain anonymous. Um, this is an industry or a company more specifically in Brookdale's case that is everywhere, as you say, um, and yet is also simultaneously somewhat invisible. Um, so just to delve a little bit more deeply into the layout of the senior living industry, it's huge. Um, I would say that the kind of overarching idea that a lot of senior living companies have grasped onto is the phrase that provided the title of my article, which is age in place or aging in place. Um, It's very possible that you've heard that term before. I hadn't. Um, I should say I'm uh, about 32. (laughs) So maybe that's why. I thought it was a really grimly funny phrase in a way, because of course, we're all aging in place constantly, no matter what. Um, That's just life. But these senior living companies, the senior living industry has figured out that this particular phrase sells what they sell, which is the idea that you can enter fairly healthy. Um, You can go into what's called independent living or IL and slowly progress um, through assisted living, through um, all sorts of other kind of smaller units like that, through, if you need it, something called memory care, um, which is for, for people with, you know, diseases um, like Alzheimer's um, and even through hospice. Um, so the idea of aging in place is kind of this overarching idea that, you know, you could enter in your 70s, you could enter even earlier than that. Um, And through a kind of a la carte, which is another phrase this industry likes to use a lot, um, through a series of kind of a la carte add-ons, you know, finish out the rest of your life uh, in senior living. And I think something really interesting to think about is that idea of the a la carte, (laughs) Because, of course, we know it from restaurant menus and it um, has, you know, a tinge of the French to it or whatever and sounds quite appetizing. Um, In senior living, it's um, senior living is incredibly expensive. (laughs) And I was looking at my grandmother's bills just out of curiosity. Um, She uh, she pays for something called personalized living, which is basically um, the a la carte of the a la carte. You add on um, personalized living in the first place. And then within personalized living, you have to pay monthly for everything from, um, uh, you know, being showered to having something that I just was flabbergasted to see on her bill. Um, The phrase was companion a la carte. And um, for a companion a la carte, which is otherwise known as just someone coming and hanging out and spending time with you, um, I believe the price for that is 
billed by the quarter of the hour um, and is, I think, $12 per 15 minutes. Um, so my interest in that kind of idea of the a la carte and how all of these add-ons connect um, over time for people was spurred actually by something that Louise said just totally offhandedly, um, which was when we were all together as an extended family, um, after her extraction from her facility, she we brought out some Cracker Jacks after dinner that had come up with her in the move, which was pretty a pretty frantic move. And the Cracker Jacks, I guess, had been handed out um, like through throughout the hallway in the in the facility to residents because they were all on lockdown. They couldn't leave their rooms. They were, you know, desperate for just any kind of piece of morale or good news or companionship. None of these things were and none of them remain particularly possible right now in the COVID-19 crisis. And so um, staff members were handing out Cracker Jacks, which sounds like, you know, it's a really sweet idea. Louise uh, <laughs> looked at this bag of Cracker Jacks that we had we had taken out after dinner, and she she was excited. You know, she was ready to eat them, but she also said very offhandedly, "I'll have to check my bill at the end of the month to see if I was charged for these." Um, and so that was a moment for me as a writer, but also just as her grand granddaughter, um, when I was just kind of, you know, struck by this question, like, what are we paying for here? Um, and is it everything as, you know, from as small as a Cracker Jack, which apparently it is, or Louise thinks it might be, um, to, you know, um, the very essential acts of being bathed, of um, getting, you know, necessary medication, things like that. And I don't want to jump jump too far ahead here, but I also um, do want to mention that I eventually had a very brief interview with a person on the board of directors at Brookdale. And I was interested in speaking with this person because she is simultaneously um, a the vice president of sales for Royal Caribbean Cruises International. Um, and I thought that that was a not only obviously and upsettingly a really uh, I don't even know the adjective, fraught um, telling position for someone to be in right now, you know, straddling two industries that are completely, um, you know, epicenters for the coronavirus, um, but also perhaps really telling. And um, so she told me in our interview, she said, and I, I say this in the article, she said, you know, senior living, she said something like senior living is essentially um, cruise ships on land. Or she said maybe it's it was kind of like cruise ships. They're kind of like cruise ships on land in terms of entertainment and add-ons and this kind of all-around experience. Um, and so I think that increasingly that is the idea, that these places are, sure, they're care facilities, um, but they also are really selling uh, the idea of aging in place and aging in place somewhere with entertainment, aging in place somewhere, um, you know, with amenities that you pay for um, out the wazoo at times. Um, and, you know, um, I would also say, and we can get to this later, these places are um, becoming real estate companies from what I can tell and what I've read as much as um, care facilities and, 
yeah, it's just, it's, it, it's such a huge topic. I hope that that answers your question a little bit, um, but there's a lot to look at. Not only does it answer my question, it segues into the next one, because in fact, uh, since you were talking about Brookdale, I think it's, it's probably appropriate to, to mention that Brookdale isn't just a senior care company, mm. is it? It's not, they're, they're not just about uh, assisted living facilities and things like that. They are in many ways a private equity firm, a real estate operation. Uh, talk to me a little bit about Brookdale, but more broadly about the role of private equity and real estate within this massive senior care industry. Sure. So I would say that this... Um was where my research began to really zoom out um, while I was working on this piece. Um, and I began to feel like I had entered <laughs> not the matrix, but um, an equally large and tangled world. Um, like a lot of other senior living companies, Brookdale is backed by private equity. Um, you know, we all or a lot of us at this point now know the name BlackRock um, from any number of industries. BlackRock is majorly behind Brookdale, as are, last I checked, um, two large private equity firms called Glenview Capital Management and Deerfield uh, Management. And um, the New York Times actually uh, ran a pretty interesting story on private equity's relationship to senior care facilities and the senior living industry. Basically, in the past um, decade or so, private equity has figured out that senior living is a, um, a place where they really want to be active. And so a lot of the largest um, uh, senior living companies, including and especially Brookdale, are backed by hedge funds, private equity, places with, um, you know, uh, that were incorporated in the Cayman Islands, uh, and certainly Delaware. Um, but uh, private equity, you know, it's interesting. These, um, I think the research, there is research on private equity, uh, and its relationship to nursing homes, um, which is something that I looked into. There was a study that was published earlier this year that found a clear correlation between private equity of nursing homes and their uh, quality ratings. Uh, and their quality ratings are given out by the Centers for uh, Medicaid and Medicare, and it's on a five-star rating. And so what the study found, and I actually coincidentally went to high school with someone who was a co-author of the study, so I got to talk to him a little bit about this. Um, but uh, what the study found was a um, after private equity came in and started steering the ship, so to speak, of these senior living companies, um, everything was done in the name of profit maximization. So what does that mean in so many cases, not just in um, you know senior living, but certainly in senior living, what it means is that staffing is spread as thin as possible, um, wages are kept down, people are asked um, at times to work, um, you know, they're scheduled across multiple properties owned by the same company, but they might be all over the city. So if you think about, for instance, how COVID-19 spreads, um, this is not a particularly great way to be operating. Um, 
It's also meant that because of understaffing, um, you know, we can't lose sight of the actual people's lives here. People are being neglected. They're being um, not cared for in a timely manner. And um, they are at times, you know, pressing, again, this is an add-on that you have to pay for in some of these cases. They have those pendants um, around their neck that they press in case of emergency. And when you pay for something like that, the expectation is that someone comes, a staff member will come to you, come to your room because it's an emergency within a set period of time. Well, what has happened is um, that's not happening. Um, People in one case that I read about, I can't remember which company this was, but I believe it was Brookdale, but I don't want to expressly say that. Um, Someone lay on the ground for 24 hours after pressing her pendant. Um, and so understaffing is something that you hear about a lot as soon as you begin to even scratch the surface of, um, the senior living industry. And I also just want to emphasize that, um, understaffing is by no means the staff's fault, the people who are being scheduled. Um, I think that they are working incredibly hard. Um, people who I spoke to, um, expressed that to me, including people even in management, Um, but there are things like bonuses for managers of these places that come from corporate that they will not, um, be able to get unless they hit a certain, um, profit. And that comes from keeping labor costs low. Um, so that has a direct correlation to private equity ownership. Um, the other thing that I think is really interesting that you mentioned, and this is something I, I think I would really like to learn more about, Um, I don't feel like an expert on this because it's honestly so tangled and um, exhausting to read about, um, is the way that these companies uh, buoyed along or buffeted along by private equity ownership have also begun to dabble, and that's probably a nicer word than I could use, in real estate um, and to turn arms of their business into real estate companies that they keep separate from Um, the other parts of their business. And that New York Times article that I referenced earlier, that gives a a really thoughtful um, actually layout of why they would do this. The short answer is for liability. Um, Senior living companies are riddled with lawsuits. They are, um, you know, it's a lawsuit dense area, particularly with regards to that kind of understaffing and negligent care that I was talking about earlier that can really... um, really happen a lot when people aren't, um, aren't you know, staffed at the adequate um, ratio to the number of residents. Um, but uh, if you have an arm of your business that is a real estate investment trust, it's an REIT is what they're called, that is managing, you know, the um, care aspect of things, um, you're actually less able to be sued for things like negligence. Um, So it's in their interest to kind of keep these pieces separate. And then I would also say that it's also in their business interests to become real estate companies. In the case of Brookdale, um, what I saw just from reading a few years worth of financial statements was it looked like a lot of what they were doing, again, is this consolidation where they are um, sometimes buying smaller companies, um, oftentimes buying buildings from other um, 
smaller companies and basically spreading out Walmart style across the country um, and really setting up shop so that um, they talk a lot about this this word scale um, so that they can keep their costs down uh, as you know on scale as a big company but then simultaneously become like the only place in a given area sometimes where people can send their loved ones. Um, and that gets particularly upsetting when you start to think about the kind of expenses that I was talking about at the beginning of our conversation, because these are expensive places um, and they know that they are. They are not catering to, and this is again from reading their financial statements, they are expressly not catering to low-income people they are um, catering explicitly to um, at least middle class, generally upper middle class people. Um, and they have lines in their financial statements where they talk about, um, you know, the fact that people have to sell their houses. Elderly people have to sell their houses sometimes in order to afford Brookdale, in order to afford coming in. Um and so when you start to think about, you know, how costly this is, um, and then also kind of balance that assessment with, you know, the real dangers and um, trends like understaffing uh, and private equity ownership, um, it starts to get pretty upsetting. <laughs> so this was, yeah, this was a hard, a hard thing for me to, to think about um, at length and, um at the same time, you know, I think these financial documents are things that really tell a story, um, albeit it's a, it's a difficult story to read. It's not particularly narrative and it's not particularly clear. But, um, you know, if you are interested in or if one is interested in kind of just looking at the underbelly of a large company, it's a really good, good place to start. And uh, just before we head to break, I want to just ask a quick uh, follow-up. I, I guess it's really a broader question. What does COVID mean for the senior care industry? I mean, you mentioned earlier that uh, the woman you spoke with was in the uh, the cruise ship industry, and I think it's uh, fairly well understood that the cruise ship industry is, um, if you pardon the pun, on the rocks. And I think I think that, um, frankly, the senior care industry might also be looking at a crisis for itself. But so what did you learn in terms of in, in the course of your research in terms of the sustainability and viability of this industry moving forward? Oh, gosh, it's such a complicated question. Um, and I'm no economist, but um, I think you could actually see it I think there's a case to be made either way. Um, so it's certainly, as you say, on the rocks, same as the cruise industry. Um, these places are hemorrhaging money currently. Move-ins, move which is their primary metric for, um, for uh, how their business is doing, so how many people are moving in. Um, and there's also a phrase that they use, which is heads in beds, i.e. you want to have the most number of heads in beds in your facility at all times um, because that is how you're making your money. Um, so yeah, move-ins are down. Um, I guess the number of heads in beds is relatively stable because people are locked in um, pretty literally. But um, you know they are um, racing to provide PPE for people who are working in their facilities. They are 
Um, They're even actually hiring, Brookdale is hiring 4,500 new people um, because of this issue of understaffing. And there's also for the first time ever a, um, well, maybe not the first time ever, but uh, I think probably a brighter light than ever right now shining on these industries, on these companies uh, for good reason. Um, But that said, so at the same time that they are hemorrhaging money, um, there's also, you know, the really gruesome fact that a lot of people are getting sick right now. A lot of elderly people are getting sick. If they are surviving, they are often, especially elderly people, sustaining um, long-time damage and um, injury uh, to their lungs, to the rest of their bodies. Um, you know, if they have pre-existing conditions or comorbidities, there's a lot of other things that have been affected by this. Um, I read an LA Times article that called COVID-19 patients cash cows, like literally, quote unquote, for the senior living industry. Um, They are expensive patients uh, to care for, meaning that if they are being reimbursed um, by Medicaid or Medicare, um, you know, there's a lot of money to make um, potentially uh, by having these people in their facilities for a long time, which is very possible. So and then there's also, you know, a very large um, elderly and aging population um, who are all aging in place no matter where they are. So, yeah, I think that in the short term, this is probably pretty um, bad (laughs) for these companies. Um, In the long term, I think within the landscape of privatized healthcare and privatized everything, which is, you know, how our country has been going, um, it wouldn't surprise me if there's um, a way for them to benefit Uh, and to make it through and probably thrive. I mean, speaking of private equity, a lot of these places that are private equity firms have their hands in other buckets at the same time or whatever the expression is, you know, fingers in other pies. (laughs) Um, So, you know, in the case of Deerfield Management, which is a company that um, has invested in Brookdale, they are simultaneously um, investing in all sorts of other pieces of the uh, healthcare industry, and it now really is an industry. Um, so everything from, you know, pharmaceutical companies to um, healthcare startups of all kinds to senior living to um, device companies. I mean, it's all part of a bigger puzzle or a bigger picture, and that picture is heavily privatized. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's a complicated um, a complicated answer to your question. I'll be very curious to see what happens, um, but I, I I can't say that I totally know. Certainly, I, I think that's true of most industries, and obviously, I think we're going to see a lot of movement as a lot of companies and a lot of industries begin to uh, eliminate the physical operations. And so you're going to see real estate becoming central as these companies gobble up uh, vacant real estate and begin to consolidate and so forth. So the move of companies like Brookdale into real estate, I think, is probably a good indicator of the direction that that might go. But of course, we will wait and see as we will with everything. And you will wait and see and you will wait and hear the second half of this episode after the music. We'll be right back. Wayfaring stranger While traveling through This world of woe Yet there's 
Chatting with Lucy Schiller here on Counterpunch Radio. Please do consider getting a subscription to Counterpunch. I'm going to throw it at you one more time. Uh, Okay, Lucy, I want to ask you a little bit about the subject of loneliness. And the reason I want to ask you about that is because you've been interested in it. You wrote for us in Counterpunch, I think in January, a really beautiful piece about loneliness, but about so much more. So why don't you tell us a little bit about why you have this interest in loneliness and the reason i'm asking this now is because well we're all in quarantine aren't we we're all we're all dealing with this question even those of us who are you know uh with our families and so forth the question looms large so talk to me a little bit about loneliness sure um well thank you so much for your words about my piece in counterpunch um i always love writing for you guys and um you're right you know loneliness was on my mind in January and um, often is. Um, I think that it's really thoughtful of you to bring up the fact that we are all currently in quarantine. We're all dealing with intense loneliness and intense isolation. Um, For me personally, um, I think that a lot of people have already been feeling some degree of loneliness and certainly alienation and atomization for a long time. Um, I know that I have um, before quarantine. Um, I was, when I was writing that piece, living alone in Germany where I had a very temporary job um, working at a university there. And I, I don't speak German despite my last name. 
And I um, was just really struggling with, you know, just spending what now feels like a normal day, you know, back to back. Uh, I was doing kind of a version of quarantine, I guess, before um, everyone else was doing it alongside me and really struggling. But um, I think that increasingly, and this has already been the case for a long time, um, a lot of people are finding their work, um, whatever it is, to be slightly more hemmed in, slightly more individualized. Maybe you work from home already. Maybe um, you uh, don't have for whatever reason, and I think it's often intentional, not on anyone, not on your part, but um, on a larger scale. Um, you know, maybe your workplace isn't unionized and there isn't a sense of community or a sense of possibility even of unionization or community building. Um, I think that um, increasingly, you know, in the gig economy, as it's called sometimes, um, or whatever we want to call it, people are patching together lives from a lot of different uh, little pieces of work and scraping by. And what that means often is that um, it's harder to build community. It's harder to um, really even have time or sometimes even emotional energy to uh, find things in common with other people who you're working with, if you're working with anyone at all. Um, and I think that that is intentional, as I said before. Um, on the parts of um, the people in control of our world and our country. And I think a lot about loneliness because um, I want to work against it. I think it's sometimes easy to romanticize, um, but I, I really struggle with it because I would love to, you know, work in a place where I um, had more contact with people. I, I think we can all relate to that, especially right now. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't want to sound like a self-help uh, author <laughs> or anything. I don't have any sort of cure that I'm peddling or um, even that many strategies. Um, but I just think about it. And I think a lot of us are thinking about it. And I, you know, I think that we're in the middle of a um, probably sustained and large scale mental health crisis um, that had its roots before quarantine. Um and yeah, again, I don't want to sound self-helpy or even like a Pollyanna, but it does provide me a little bit of solace just to know that other people, this is just a moment where it feels like the veil in front of the face of power is really thin and um, a lot of people are able to see it at the same time. And even if we are all isolated, there is potentially um, a feeling of um, to use an overused word, community or solidarity um, against that. So I don't know if you have any thoughts, Eric, but um, I just don't know, you know, exactly what that looks like or what it could mean in terms of community building when we're all, you know, trying to save lives by staying inside. I think social media is helpful and it's also um, really awful for everyone's mental health. Um, yeah, I don't know. 
I wonder about this asinine phrase hashtag that is on all of these TV ads alone together. Oh, yeah. They say <laughs> alone together. We're all alone together. Right. Of course, the idea being that we're all alone, but we're all in this together. It's so poetic. It's yeah, so beautiful. Right. But there's something really sickening about the idea of being alone together, because, in fact, as you were just alluding to, in many ways, we were alone together well before COVID. Yeah. Uh, the, the development of social media, the, the move to telecommuting, all of the different uh, methods of atomization that you were talking about. Yeah. And so it's almost it's almost now it's kind of like manifested into its final form where we have to be lonely isolated and alone yeah i think that's such a great point i mean i also want to say like i think that uh, it's it's totally fascinating to think of this as like the final phase um but i also think it's fascinating and important to remember that Loneliness is nothing new. Um, isolation is nothing new. These are like age old themes in art and literature and philosophy. And, um, you know, I personally have found some solace in, you know, reading people who have written about loneliness and solitude um, in ways that feel honest to me rather than like, oh, I'm living in a garret and isn't it romantic? And, you know, I never go outside and whatever. I mean, this is not a voluntary situation that all of us are in. Um, so I, I, I think you're totally right that that phrase alone together is um, upsetting and sickening. And it also is really honest in this weird way because we have been alone together for a long time. Um, so, yeah, we, I don't know. I mean, can we be lonely yeah. without being alone? <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think so. Um, the writer Vivian Gornick wrote a book kind of about this question. Um, I think it's called Odd, uh, Odd Woman in the City. Um, and so it's about being someone who thinks of herself as very solitary and sometimes lonely in the middle of a city, um, you know, in the middle of a bunch of other people. And yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when you're sometimes when you're speaking with someone who you don't have a lot in common with politically, at least for me, I can I can tend to feel pretty lonely pretty quickly. Um, or, you know, sometimes even in the middle of a crowd, remember, <laughs> remember crowds, um, even in the middle of a crowd, you can feel, you know, lonely, I think, for a brief moment sometimes. Um just remembering that, you know, everyone's experience is somewhat atomized and somewhat individual. But I guess, I don't know, I think in this particular moment, it's really worth trying to hold on to um, larger feelings of solidarity and um, not that feeling necessarily or that hashtag, that catchphrase which is, you know, branding of being alone together, not, you know, the self-care industry, which can, you know, have its good points, I guess, if you're, um, you know, immediately soothed by a candle or something, that's okay. But like, you know, this is a moment, at least in my eyes, when uh, it's either going to get really bad after this, or we're going to push for something different. And, I think, you know, we're having this interview right now in the middle of mass 
protests um, all across the country and even across the world in solidarity with um, people who are protesting against police brutality and police and police violence and racism. And uh, I don't know how you feel, but I just feel like this is, um, it really is an extended moment in which a lot of people feel something similar, um, that something, a lot of things are deeply wrong <laughs> with our country and with the way that we have been told to live our lives. And that, you know, we're mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore. I mean, that's what it feels like. So, um, yeah. One of the things that has been on my mind in kind of thinking about this conversation, thinking about this subject, is this this idea of solitude. Because, you know, for some people, you know, you're talking about loneliness in the context of COVID and quarantine, I think we all understand what we're talking about. But for others like me, who are in a house with a wife and two very young children, solitude and being alone means something very different. And sharing space and uh, being with people versus being alone, uh, it's not what it once was when I would commute to my office and I would have an hour and a half to myself on a train or, you know, walking around or going to lunch on my own or whatever. None of that, none of that is here anymore. And now I am sharing all aspects of my life with my family and it changes, Mm. it changes how I think about the brief moments of time that I get to myself. Yeah, I I think you might be in a more like extreme version of um, that situation than I am. And I, I do relate to what you're saying. Like I'm, again, I'm in my 30s and I'm living with my parents again because I got stranded in the U.S. Um, when COVID was really um, breaking out here and I was working in Germany and I couldn't um, go back So I feel like a teenager again. (laughs) And, um, you know, I think everyone has a somewhat different situation, but I understand what you're saying totally about um, just feeling like even if you can close the door, (laughs) it's not really even solitude. And I know a lot of people can't even necessarily close the door because they're caring for their children or they're making dinner or whatever. Um, So... Yeah, I think that this is just a real, like, we're all thrown for loops here in terms of (laughs) trying to find solitude, but then also not feeling too lonely or too solitudinous. Um, And I don't know what the answer is, but um, yeah, I I just want to say I I totally know what you mean. And yeah. you know, it's an odd feeling to be living with my parents again personally and um, feel like a like I'm slipping into surly teenagerhood when I left that behind or thought I did, you know, um, many, many years ago. I, I think that a lot of people are kind of even like showing sides of themselves, even to their family members that they, they have not um, shown before um, or shown in a long time. And um yeah uh, again i think everyone is going through some version of it um if they're staying inside but um that those versions are somewhat different there's one other aspect of this that i just want to get your comment on loneliness as we're talking about it here we're talking about uh loneliness of the i i, I don't know 
of the person, of an emotion, of the individual. Mm -hmm. But there's a there's another kind of loneliness that I think probably everybody listening to this conversation knows very well, and that's the political loneliness that is felt by people on the left, feeling yeah. how alone it feels to watch everything that's going on around us and sometimes feeling powerless against it, feeling outmatched by the corporate establishment that controls both major parties in this country that has suppressed any political dissent and so forth, that many of us have been atomized politically as well and have in some senses withdrawn inward and particularly during this time. And so I think there is this lingering question of our our collective political loneliness on the left. Yeah, I totally agree. And I'm fascinated by this question. As with everything on this topic, I have no answer um, other than to say I feel that every day and like every minute of every day. And I think, um, you know, the irony is that a lot of people feel that <laughs> um, every minute of every day, but we have a hard time, um, you know, building momentum or finding each other, especially in this particular moment, um, and talking about it. And I'm not trying to sound like an ad for Counterpunch, but I, that is something that I love about Counterpunch is that um, it very much is one of the few kind of arenas for expressing those feelings and for actually having, you know, debates and um, thoughtful conversations with other people who probably often feel in a similar way, politically alienated or politically lonely. Um, I also want to add, I think just on the note of like professionalization that we were talking about earlier and the way that jobs increasingly have asked us to become um, individuals rather than collective groups of people um, or, you know, have spread us thin across multiple jobs. The economy has asked us to do that or whoever. Um you know, it's harder and harder to be a political person at work, um, to find those connections at work. And I think that those two threads are really related. You know, the idea of people being isolated and atomized in their workplace, and then also their increasing inability to make connections in their workplace. I've been in, um, I mean, I, I would hesitate to even say this, but I'm, uh, I would be, I've been in academia for the last few years, but it doesn't even feel like I can really lay claim to that because I've been a temporary um, <laughs> worker in academia. Um, you know, I've bounced around from year-long job to year-long job and done freelance stuff on the side and, you know, cobbled together um, a living. And most people who I know in academia who, who are my age are doing some version of that. And um, not only, as I was saying before, is it difficult for us to mobilize together, though there, there is a little bit of activity there on certain campuses among, you know, non-tenure track um, faculty, but it's also really difficult for us to feel um, sometimes safe sharing our politics openly with each other or talking politically. I think um, that loneliness is really real. And um, I've struggled with it big time because increasingly there's this sense that you have to remain professional, whatever that's supposed to mean. And, um, you know, professionalism 
for some reason doesn't include being political. There's no room for that. And um, yeah, I think that's that's a problem that a lot of people are coming up against. And I guess my question in response to it is just, you know, how do we change that? Is it possible to just defy that and find that, you know, mobilization together? I think if any moment is going to be a moment for it, this one has a lot of potential at the same time as, you know, being incredibly scary and difficult and heartbreaking. Um, I think that there's also a lot of potential. And, you know, that was not a realization that I personally came upon on my own. I have spent the last year especially feeling just like deeply depressed (laughs) about our political situation and political loneliness and loneliness in general and the future climate crisis. I could go on and on. Um, but it's from talking with other people, my parents, um, a few friends, certainly a few people at Counterpunch that, um, you know, I've found at least a small degree, a small kernel of optimism. Um, and yeah, I think it's important to hold on to. Absolutely. Uh, we, we, can't, we can't lose sight of that. And optimism, of course, is going to be the fuel for the continuing fight. Um, so we'll leave it there. Lucy Schiller, thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Lucy Schiller, New Mexico-based essayist. You can follow her work on the website, lucy-schiller.work. Lucy, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio and talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. It was a real pleasure. Listeners, thank you as always, and we will chat again next week.